Well, I think we're about ready to begin here. So appreciate everyone for being here tonight. And uh, again, I give appreciation to Phil for last week. Uh, again, I, I understand how it is not easy to step in, present somebody else's material. Uh, so I do appreciate him uh, going through that and uh, hopefully not getting me in too much trouble uh, from that. So we did have a nice trip to Louisville to see our granddaughter. Uh, the son and daughter-in-law were included in that package, so we got to see. Yeah, it's, that's kind of how that one worked. So, um, so we got to see that. Um, uh, Kay, let me know that Kevin Knight, new youth minister, will be having shoulder surgery tomorrow. So let's uh, kind of keep him in our prayers. Yeah. So he had injured it before he moved here, so it's not not our fault yet. <laughs> So, okay. So we'll begin with a prayer. If you'd bow with me, please. Um, our Father, we give you blessing and honor. We um, acknowledge you as the giver of all gifts. And we come to you tonight and ask that you guide us in our thoughts, that you will allow us to uh, just gain a better understanding of who you are and just how you have chosen to interact with us and how you have blessed us. We ask your blessings on Kevin tomorrow with his surgery and uh, with others uh, whom we all know that are experiencing uh, either surgeries or illnesses coming up, and we just ask that you continue to be with those who are surrounding them. Uh, we ask this through your son. Amen. All right, so tonight uh, we'll be predominantly looking at the patron-client relationship. It's not something that we are real familiar with. Uh, our, our culture is very different than that. So the goals of our, of our class tonight will be to understand in a broad sense the patron-client relationship so that when we hear those terms, we have an understanding of what that means. Also to examine or begin to examine its impact on the New Testament and also to be culturally aware of its presence. So as we're reading through the New Testament, uh, we see those instances and then we kind of have an understanding of what's happening. Next week, um, what my plan is, is to take last week's lesson of honor, this week's lesson of the patron-client, and tie it together more in how does it then relate to us. So tonight is more building a, a foundation that says, okay, here's what the patron-client relationship is. Next week we'll be saying, let's take honor, let's take patronage and tie it together and say, how does that then influence um, and how can it help me in my understanding of the New Testament? So when we talk about the patron-client relationship, we are predominantly or almost exclusively in the New Testament times. So we're really talking about the time period when Christ and Paul and Peter, the apostles, were really focused on New Testament when we speak of patron-client. When we're speaking of honor-shame, we're speaking more broadly in a culture that was Old Testament and New Testament. Um, I do want to review that just a little bit because, again, it's, it's not something we are, um, we're just kind of used to. It is not our culture. And it is the predominant culture of the New Testament and the Old Testament. That is how uh, they thought, and it was within the social connections it's how you fit into society. As, um, as an example, if y'all come over to the house to eat, a small group comes over to the house to eat, we just sit wherever we want. There is zero thought into which seat you're going to sit in other than nobody's sitting in it yet. But it doesn't matter to us where we sit at the table. We, we give it no thought at all. In an honor culture, that's pretty important. Where you sit in relationship to the host 
is based on your honor relative to those who are present at the dinner. And that's why when Jesus says, hey, if you go to a dinner, don't take the place of more honor. What's he saying? He's saying, don't try to claim a seat that's higher than where you really stand within the community. Why? Well, because if someone with higher honor comes in, the host is going to say, back down. And we would say, oh, that's a little embarrassing. But for them, that would be shame. There would be shameful. And it's more than embarrassing. It is saying, you were kind of trying to claim a spot that wasn't yours, and the community is putting you back in your place. Jesus says, do what instead? Take a lower seat. So the host says, no, no, you, you come up here and sit, sit here. So then you gain more honor. Um, one author told the story of uh, dinner in Thailand where it's a very much an honor culture. And a young man who had gone away from the community and studied and gotten his degree came back. And when they were going to sit at the table, he moved himself up a couple of spots in the honor chain there. And he was challenged. The host challenged him on that. In which the young man kind of said, well, I've got this, this um, degree. I've got graduated with this honor. And the host accepted it. So then he got to take that seat. Well, what happened? Well, everybody else now had to adjust to fit within where that honor scale ranked. So recognize that the, the honor culture is very much based upon what the community basically confirms that your honor that you have declared or claimed is actually kind of where your honor is. So it is a, a community-based culture, not individualistic as we are, because it's the community that confirms your honor, confirms your spot. It is a, a zero-sum game. And as... Um, Yeah, so what that, what that basically means is, uh, let's put it in, in auditorium example here. As we look at this auditorium, there are a finite number of chairs. We could count the seats and we know that's how many seats there are. It's finite. There's not an unlimited number of seats here in the auditorium. They view honor the same way. Now, we don't understand that because we go, how can you limit honor? I mean, it's not like you run out of seats. But they view it just like we view the seats in this auditorium. So if I'm, my honor is worth 30 seats, and Don's honor is worth 30 seats, and Don challenges my honor, and I win that honor, I win that challenge, well, now I may have 40 seats. Where'd the other 10 seats come from? They came from Don. He had his, his piece of the pie got smaller. My piece of the pie got bigger. The pie doesn't get any bigger. So in their economy, in their culture, remember this is predominantly kind of an agricultural com community. Probably one to no more than 5% of the population held 95% of the wealth. So for the peasants, for those who were in that large percentage that didn't have the wealth, yeah, everything was very limited. So even honor, something that we consider abstract as honor, was limited. And we have to keep that in mind as we read through the New Testament and we see Jesus in his interaction with others. Um, recognize the opposite of honor is dishonor. Shame is positive. We use shame negatively. 
when we shame somebody, we're pushing them away. We're, in essence, it's close to an insult. But for them, shame was positive. If I uh, had shame, that meant that I understand the community standards and I am willing to accept those standards and live within those standards. If I didn't have shame, if I'm shameless, that says I, I reject the community standards. I'm going to live outside that. So shame was a positive tool to bring people back into the center. So you've got your, your community standards, kind of the high bar and the low bar. And shame was used, if I got outside that, to bring me back into community. Uh, and we see Paul in the Corinthians. He's saying, I say this to your shame. He's not trying to push them away. He's trying to pull them back in. Uh, Phil also talked that honor is based on ascribed honor and achieved honor. So ascribed honor is that honor that you get just from who you are. That I am born into a certain family. That family has honor. And I get my family's honor. Um, I can do that through... Uh, birth, I can do that through adoption, I can do that through marriage, uh, I can marry into a family, and now I've assumed that family's honor. And I kind of fit now on the scale where that family is. Um, and that is why when we see Matthew open with a genealogy, what is he saying? He's saying Jesus has ascribed honor. Why? House of David. The house of David had high honor. So Matthew is letting his readers know we're starting off with an individual, with Jesus, who has honor. And it is, uh, it's from the house of David. So he's kind of already saying he, he's got a pretty good piece of the pie to start with. Um, we may, may touch on this next week a little bit, but just to kind of get you to thinking... Uh, Philemon. Philemon is, is full of honor language and patronage language, as we're going to see. So what's the problem in Philemon? Onesimus has run away from Philemon. He's with Paul. Paul has honor with Philemon. Because Paul says, hey, I've, I've given you spiritual benefits. There's some patronage language that we're going to see, but there's honor language. Paul has honor with Philemon. What does he call Onesimus? He says, Onesimus, my son. What's he just done? He's just said, Onesimus picks up my honor. So Philemon, if you are going to honor me, you now need to honor Onesimus because he has ascribed honor based on being my son. Think on that through the next week. Because that's we're going to talk more in that line. We can also have achieved honor. Again, that is um, from the honor battles that we saw, the honor challenges that Jesus had with others. So again, if I uh, am in the community or in public, someone um, challenges my honor, I win that challenge. Now I have more achieved honor. It is through... Uh, battles, so people who uh, won battles would have achieved honor, and uh, just kind of things you've done. If you have helped the community, then you have achieved more honor. Uh, if you've built a synagogue, you have achieved more honor. So those are the two ways that honor is, um, is based on. And if you look, we'll see that the New Testament is filled with honor-shame language. Why is that? Well, that's their culture. Um, our, our language is filled with guilt-innocence language. Um, that's just because that's just who we are. That's just how we've been brought up. If you look in Romans, I just did a quick search and I just looked, okay, look for the words guilt, innocence, guilty. I just chose those three. There were six occurrences of those three words in Romans. 
I then looked, honor, shame, shameful. Almost 90 occurrences of those words. What does that tell us? We kind of need to have an understanding of this culture if we really want to understand what the writers were talking about because that is the culture that they lived in. And uh, honor, shame will overshadow everything else we're going to talk about. So over the next several weeks, honor and shame, this honor culture is kind of the big umbrella. So as we talk about patronage, patronage is more a Greco-Roman, probably more Roman, and in the New Testament times, but honor is based, is built into it. When we talk about kinship, we'll have honor is based in that. So we have those, um, just kind of recognize it is the big umbrella that the entirety of Scripture is in essence based on. We talked about some examples of the honor challenges. So someone could challenge my honor, and now I need to respond. And there could be a positive challenge and a negative challenge. The positive challenge uh, was when the um, rich young ruler comes up and says, good teacher, what must I do? Well, in that culture, that was a the positive honor challenge, he was trying to kind of hop on the coattails of Jesus' honor. Because if Jesus responds with a compliment back, now Jesus has, in essence, lifted him up a little bit. So he comes up, says, good teacher, what must I do? What does Jesus say? Why are you calling me good? So what did Jesus say with that honor challenge? I ain't having anything to do with that. You're not going to get on my coattails. I'm not lifting you up. Now, what about the Syrophoenician woman? How did she respond? That was kind of a positive honor challenge. What did he do? He lifted her up. So we see those challenges. We see Nicodemus. So, and again, the writer says Nicodemus was what? A ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. He had honor. When we talk about ascribed honor and achieved honor, his piece of the pie was fairly large. And the writer says he came by night. And we look at all of our commentaries, and what do all of our commentaries say? Well, he was afraid of other Jews. He was sneaking around, didn't want to be seen and besides, he could have gone during the daytime and asked Jesus a question at any time. And that's absolutely false. That is a total disconnect with the culture. That is, as Phil wants me to pronounce, anachronism. It's reading our culture back into the story. With the honor that Nicodemus had... Remember, there is no... You know, we kind of say, well, you know, maybe Nicodemus and Jesus could have just kind of gone over into a private corner during the day and had that discussion. No. There was no private corner to go into. Again, that's how we would do it. But Jesus had his followers, Nicodemus had his followers, and they followed. They were with him in public places all the time. So there was no going to a private spot and having a private conversation during the day. So when the author says, by night, he's letting his readers know this is no longer an honor challenge. Nicodemus is sincerely coming to Jesus and wanting to have an open discussion without the public rendering a verdict. So it doesn't really change how we view the discussion, but it does change how we view Nicodemus and puts a little bit different spin on how is he asking these questions. They're not um, challenging questions. He's, he's sincerely wanting to know. And that's, that was within the culture. Um, a very hostile challenge. Rulers come up and say what? By whose authority are you doing these things? That is, that was almost, that was probably one of the most aggressive honor challenges that Jesus faced. That was very much in your face. What does Jesus say? 
says, okay. But I'm going to ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. So what Jesus said, he said, okay, we're, we're in this challenge. I've, we got it. The game is on. But he spun the tables around and said, okay, now I'm challenging back. So he goes, baptism of John. From heaven or from men? So if you ever, if you picture a, a Texas Longhorn, okay, they're sitting on one of those points. He put them on the horns of a dilemma there. Because what did they say? They said, hmm, if we say from men, we lose the challenge. Our honor just gets pummeled. Because why? The people think he was from God. But if we say from heaven, we win the challenge, but we lose the battle because he's going to say, well, why aren't you believing him? So what do they say? Uh, we don't know. That was basically them saying we forfeit. Because if you did not answer the challenge, you lose. So they basically said, we just forfeit this challenge. We're not going to enter into it. And what does Jesus say? Well, then I'm not going to, I don't have to answer your question because you just lost. What happened? Jesus' pie gets bigger. What happens? Their pie gets smaller. Now what do they want to do? They want to save face. That is important in an honor culture of saving face. Our face is what people see. That's why it's called saving our face. That's, that's what we all look at, at least when we don't have masks on. And the only way they could save face, and as we, as we go through the Passion Week, you see honor challenge after honor challenge. Jesus wins them all. His pie is getting so big, the only way they could save face is to kill him. So a lot of that envy was, was purely a result of wanting to save face, wanting to maintain their honor because Jesus' honor had gotten out of control in relationship to theirs. So as we read through the Gospels, that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing with this interaction between individuals, especially when it's in public. And... and Pretty much, once you stepped out the front door, you're in public. Uh, that's a public space. So if we contrast uh, honor with our culture, for us, if we have an evangelistic sermon, typically it's what? God is the judge. Uh, Jesus is our advocate or our defense attorney. And we need... Jesus to take away the guilt of our sin. How many of you would agree with that's predominantly what we hear with our evangelistic sermons? Um, that's, I've never heard an evangelistic sermon that says God is going to restore your honor and take away your shame. We hear that and we go, What does that even mean? Now, taking away my guilt, I understand that. But, I don't know, restoring my honor, it just it doesn't resonate. Again, is there agreement with that, with that statement? So if we take the message that God is a judge and you need your guilt removed into an honor culture, and then we wonder, why is that message not being heard? Because we're going to say, look, don't you have any guilt for your sins? You, you did something wrong. Don't you feel guilty? And they're going to say, no, not, not really. Well, how can you not feel guilty? And they're going to say, excuse me, On Pentecost, uh, Pentecost was then the, uh, you're talking about the 
baptizing or the, the people who re- repented? Mm-hmm. Um, that is that what they had been shamed. I I would not. Uh, I would be hard pressed at this point to say that they felt guilty, but they did feel that their honor had been lost and their honor needed to be restored. Just like someone, uh, someone in an honor culture would ask us, don't you, uh, have you no dishonor? And we would go, well, I don't know what you mean by that. Because do we don't feel dishonor that much. So to the same degree, just a second, Carl, again, to the same degree that we have trouble feeling dishonor, they would have trouble feeling guilt. We are not talking about whether it's Christian or non-Christian. It's just a way of viewing the world. And it is hard for us to really understand that. And it's equally hard for them to understand how we feel guilty and how we don't feel dishonor. Uh, it, it's, it takes a lot of work for us to try to at least mentally get into that. We cannot, I don't think we can ever emotionally get into that. We are so emotionally uh, wired for guilt because that's all we've known our entire life. Just like someone who's grown up in an honor culture, that's all they've known. Now, is there guilt in there? Yes, there's, there's an element, but it's not the predominant feeling. Do we feel dishonored? Yeah, but it's not a predominant feeling, okay? Don't, don't think of this as either or. Again, Phil uh, had a bar graph last week and kind of showed how within the United States we are predominantly guilt. There is some honor, a little bit of fear. Once you move to um, Guatemala, it's predominantly honor, a little bit of guilt, but a lot more fear. We'll talk about that in just a second. Carl? Yeah. I don't think it doesn't say in there that you committed terrible sins by killing. It's a picture of what they have done to the Messiah. God is what are we going to do? Yeah, that's a good that's a good. I mean, yes, they um, you you dishonored Jesus. You shamed him. The 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 crucifixion was as shameful as you could get. Uh, that was very shaming. We'll talk we're gonna talk more about that next week. Um if we contrast the fear culture with our culture, again, the fear culture uh, is very based on spirits. It's um, who's in power. And uh, Zambia and Guatemala both have strong elements of the fear culture within them. Uh, we went down for Christmas, over Christmas, one, one of our trips, and we saw the priests uh, who were, were wanting to drive out the evil spirits uh, with uh, it's kind of a kind of a cross between Catholicism and animistic um, religions there. It's a, it's a very weird mix there, but it's very real for them. Uh, very real in Zambia. Uh, there's definitely a fear that someone could curse you. Uh, we we say if someone curses us, we think of some of the words they may have used versus actual uh, spirit cursing and. Um, there's a, a strong recognition of evil spirits. So when we watch movies like The Omen or The Exorcist, kind of dating myself, and when um, and I really didn't enjoy those at all, but but we we have those as movies, and, and individuals from those cultures would go, "What are you doing? Why why would you even think of watching something that celebrates an evil spirit like that?" Again, that is more their culture. Um, yeah, since Jesus has set you free from that power. Here's the thing. Does Jesus remove our guilt? Is God a judge and Jesus removes, us our, removes our guilt? Absolutely. 
Does Jesus restore our honor and take away our shame? Absolutely. Does Jesus free us from the power of the dark forces? Absolutely. What does this say about the gospel? It applies to all cultures. So we're not saying one culture is better or worse than the other. One culture is Christian or non-Christian. We're saying the gospel applies to all cultures. And that if we tailor our message to an individual who comes from a certain culture, they may hear it better than if I tailor it just for my culture. So again, the importance of honor, it was, it's foundational, both family, political, religious, and social. Um, do we need to understand honor to know what God requires of us? No. We can read scripture. We can understand scripture purely within our guilt-innocence culture. And we can live an, a, a life before God that he is pleased with. And we can have security in who God is. Do we need to understand gospel, honor in order to share the gospel with other cultures? I would say to that, yes. We do need to understand that and be aware of it, specifically because all of Scripture was written within that culture. All right, so we're going to transition now to, to the patronage side of things. Wherefore out there? Where's, what's that from? Romeo and Juliet. Juliet, I picture on the balcony, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? And I am, I as a southern guy not versed in Shakespeare, picture Juliet up there going, Romeo, where are you? Anybody seen Romeo? Where are you at? That's exactly what, you know, a nice southern Juliet would say. And that's how I read it. But how do we really interpret it? See, it's really not a question of location. She is not trying to get out her find my iPhone and figure out where Romeo is. It's a question of family heritage. What is being asked is, Romeo, why are you from a forbidden family? Why are you from the family that is enemies of my family? Because, you know, it's just really putting a crimp on our dating thing. And that's the question. But for me, we need those who um, have studied, and I apologize on that, who've studied Shakespeare, studied the times, to help me understand the real question. Otherwise, I got it all wrong. And that's why it's the same with culture in the first century. It is beneficial for us to have those who have spent their time studying the culture so that we can kind of understand what was going on at that time. So we have patrons. So for us, a patron typically is what? Somebody who supports the arts. You know, you're watching Downton Abbey and the ad comes on and Rocky Mountain PBS says, hey, for this amount of money, you can help, you know, you'll get a mug. And for this much more, you get a DVD set. And we want your support. We want your patronage. Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, you can be a patron for $1,000. And you get two elephants, two little elephants, and two giraffes. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and a golf cart to go with it with a fork and spoon. 500 bucks more, you can be a gold patron. And that's how we view patrons, right? It's, it's somebody, it's kind of, for us, mainly a supporter of the arts. Um, but we also will say we patronize a restaurant. That means what? We go eat there a lot. There's no relationship. Uh, I can patronize a restaurant, and that restaurant doesn't owe me anything. And quite frankly, I don't owe them anything either. It's just who we go. Yeah, if, if, and if they goof up, we just... Take our meals elsewhere. So let's look at this patron-client versus capitalism because really it's more of an economic system. Uh, it's, it's a social interaction, the way individuals interact with each other, but more from an economic. 
Our society is based on capitalism. Our purchases do not depend on relationships. When I go to Walmart and I buy my product and I pay, uh, now I don't even have to see anybody, right? We can just go through the self-checkout. But if I do go through a checkout counter, me and the, the checkout person, there's no relationship. It's a transaction-based system. Um, if, you know, Alan comes over and helps me uh, with my take down some trees or something, he offered that service. I mean, he just did that as a friend. But there's really no implied obligation there. Just helping out. If I help out somebody, it's, we're just offering assistance. We can ascend or descend the economic ladder pretty much based on how hard you want to work. I mean, you, you see a show like Shark Tank, and you see these individuals who've come over to the U.S. with nothing, and now they're millionaires, billionaires. So with hard work within our culture, you can change your economic and social status. Within our, within our culture. We tend to discourage nepotism, that means hiring of family members. Uh, we don't like favoritism. If I apply for a job, I kind of want to be hired because I was the best candidate for the job, not because somebody else knew the person doing the hiring. And we, we like that fairness. Is that, does, are we feeling comfortable with what we see here? Is that everybody's comfort zone? That is true. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'll, you know, in full disclosure, uh, my first accounting job, uh, the guy worked with the youth group in Nashville. He was in Denver, called me up, said I got an accounting job. Had, it doesn't require any experience. I fit that. Would you be interested? He had a stack of resumes that high. I didn't even put a resume in. Said, do you want the job? Yeah, okay. Um, that was more patron-client oriented because it was who I knew. Okay, that was entirely based on who I knew. So the patron-client relationship, it is a relationship. It is not transactional. And it's a relationship that can last for generations. When we give a gift, um, there's no expectation, really, of, of anything in return. We, we kind of say the gift has no strings attached. In the patron-client relationship, every gift had a string attached. There was always an expectation of something in return. And it very much was more who you know than what you know, and you were locked into a certain status. How could that status change? We talked a moment ago, marriage, adoption, something like that. So patronage refers to uh, the ordering of social relationships based on the exchange of wealth and influence. So the, the patron is the one, they were that one to five percent. They had the wealth, they had the resources. And therefore, they could meet the requests of those who had need. The client is typically the one who is in need. And the client would then choose a patron who could best be able to meet those needs in the long term. If I'm building a house, what do I do in our culture? I go to U.S. Bank. I try to arrange for a loan. They get the loan, I get the money, I pay Home Depot or Lowe's, get the materials, I contract it out. It was not the case then. If I needed to build a house, I needed to go to a patron who maybe had the lumber and had, or had the connections. So if I couldn't get anything in the marketplace, and we're not talking about you know, buying your sugar, buying your salt, and it, what was available here in the marketplace it was for those out of the ordinary or those larger expenses. I had to get go to, through a patron in order to do that. And I would choose my patron carefully because I needed to know that that patron would meet my needs. And as we said, 
all gifts have a string attached. The key word that I want you to remember for this really is reciprocity. And that is just saying that if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's putting it in our terminology, isn't it? Um, if I give you a gift, there is a solid expectation. Uh, so if, if you know, if, if um, I give somebody, if y'all give, well, we'll reverse it this way. If Phil gives Craig a baby gift, then when Phil becomes a granddad, there would be an absolute expectation that I'm going to get his kid, grandkid a gift. It doesn't matter how much time passes in between. That obligation is there. Here's the other thing is this really isn't specific to the Jewish culture. I do, I, from what I can see, the Jewish culture was not a patronage culture. This is predominantly Greece and probably even more predominantly Rome. So when we look at this, when we look at it again, New Testament time is what we're talking about. We're predominantly talking about those uh, individuals who were predominantly Greco-Roman in, in their social structure. Now, the Jews since they lived within that culture, were very familiar with it and had to participate in it. But we're not talking about something, at least that I can see, that evolved through the Old Testament. So if we read um, back through David and all that, uh, some authors try to push that into a patronage, and, and I just personally, I don't see it. I see it predominantly in the New Testament times. A couple of things on patronage here. So it is uh, an exchange, again, reciprocal, of tangible goods for intangible. So if I need lumber, I find a patron who has lumber, I can't repay him. There's no way I can repay that gift. But what I can do is tell others how honorable that patron is. And if that patron runs for office, I can vote for that patron. So I can support that patron. That's the tangible for intangible. It's asymmetrical, meaning it's lopsided. There's a wealthy and there's a poor. It is uh, particular. That means it is for a specific person. So if, I'm have, if I am a patron, I have specific clients. These are individuals. It says it's super legal. What that simply means is it's not law, but it's awful close. If I break the, the cycle, if you honor me or you uh, meet my need with the lumber and I then don't honor you, um, that has brought shame upon me and that patron's not going to have anything to do with me in the future. Whoops, sorry about that. Uh, it's binding and long-range. Again, it can cross generations, so you had to be careful. Patrons had to be careful who they accepted as clients. And I needed to be careful who I accepted as a patron. It's voluntary, meaning it's by choice, and it is vertical, again, in that it's the, the wealthy to those who lacked power. The responsibilities of the patron. Again, now we're thinking of just the patron. Uh, they gave their favors without expecting anything in return. The client did not merit the gift. They didn't deserve it because of something they did. And as a, as a patron, I am to consider that I gave that gift just because of the generosity of my heart. And I'm not expecting anything in return. Um, I am then to take care of my clients. Because by taking care of my clients, they then give me more honor and I then maybe get more clients. And the more clients I have, the more honor I have. The more I can then possibly rise up in that honor social structure. And it, you can be a patron and a client. Again, in the Roman world, who was the supreme patron? Caesar, the emperor, was the supreme patron. And he bequested gifts upon the empire. 
So those under him would have been his clients, but they would have had people under them. So we've got there a patron to these individuals. So you have this structure here. So public works. For us, when we build a road, that's because we've gone to the gas station, filled up, a part of that price goes into our tax dollars, and that tax base gets, we won't get political in where it goes, but supposedly it is to then benefit and build roads for us. In, uh, in that culture, no. There's no taxes that built the public roads. So if a public road needed to be built, you needed someone who was wealthy, a patron, to build that road or to build that building. So one of the things that a patron would do would be in order to, again, gain more honor, would be to benefit the public. It didn't make everyone a client, but it did indebt the community to that patron. Again, greater honor, and typically that is called a benefactor. We use that term today too, right? When if you give a gift to uh, the, the museum, then you're a benefactor. Uh, if you give a thousand, you're a patron. Give five thousand, you're a benefactor. That's just better rates. But that's that's the difference there. The responsibilities of the client. The primary virtue that held above everything else was gratitude. That's the primary virtue in that culture. So as a client, I need to show gratitude to my patron. I need to be thankful. Overly thankful. Continually thankful. Unendingly thankful. Um, to not show gratitude, they considered very shameful. Because if I don't show gratitude, then the patron is less likely to extend the gifts that I need. And now this cycle to where people benefit is being broken. So gratitude, again, was extremely important. Honor was very important. I, need, I had to honor my patron and lift him up or her up in the public. It was letting others know how honorable this patron is. For the public works, they, they find uh, in, in the archaeological digs, there are plaques that people see that, you know, Erastus paid for this road. And that was a way of honoring the patrons. And loyalty was also a key virtue. If I became a client to a patron, I needed to be loyal to that patron uh, and to the point of dying for that patron. I should never be disloyal to that patron. Even if I suffered shame, I am going to be loyal to the patron. Now, sometimes I may need more than one patron. So what, did that what does this tell me? I need to be very careful what patrons I pick. Because if I pick two patrons and those two patrons get crosswise with each other, now what do I have to do? I've got to choose one. And then I've got to be disloyal to the other. So there was careful thought given as to what patron and making sure you didn't get crosswise with another patron who was enemies with that one. And that kind of gives a little bit of insight when Jesus says what? You can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one, hate the other. You've got to, there's that loyalty. That's a, that's a patronage co concept that he's talking about that they would have been very familiar with. Uh, again, Seneca was contemporary, he was a Roman contemporary with Paul. So we know this is, this is within the time of the New Testament. Basically his comment is increasing the fame of the giver is part of the proper return for a benefit. And a gift that one is ashamed to acknowledge openly in the hearing of all one has no business accepting that gift. He's saying what? If you can't be proud of the patron and tell others about this gift, then don't accept it. So that's the gratitude, that's the honor, that's the loyalty that we're seeing. There's different rules between the patron and the client. Last week, Phil talked a little bit about rules and relationships. And for us, rules tend to matter. 
we, we put rules somewhat ahead of relationships. Rules need to apply to everybody. That's fair. For them, relationships were at the top, and the rules supported that. So there were, could be different rules. So here, for the patron, patron is to make no record of the amount. I'm to give the gift and then forget about it. What about the client? Yeah, I'm supposed to feel indebted for more than the amount. So as a patron, I don't expect anything in return. As a client, I'm expected to give something in return. As a patron, I forget the gift was given. As a client, I always remember that the gift was received. As a patron, I'm to think of nothing in getting anything in return. If I do, then it really wasn't out of generosity. But as a client, there is an absolute necessity of reciprocating that gift. And if I don't, that again is shameful. So really it is reciprocity. You've got this dance between the giver and the one who receives the gift. Now what if, we're, what if it's not two different wealthy and, and lower class? What if it's just kind of equals? Let's go out into the fields, into the village, where we have just the peasants, the farmers. Favors between equals. Again, that's whether it's, it's rich or poor. It's basically being a good neighbor. We would call it being a good neighbor. If my neighbor needs help, I'm going to help my neighbor. But for them, this was an insurance policy. Because if my neighbor fell on hard times, there's a good chance I may fall on hard times. And if my neighbor needs help when he falls on hard times, there's a chance I'm going to need help when I fall on hard times. So I'm going to do things for my neighbor so that when my time comes, my neighbor's obligated to help me. Uh, Seneca says this, again, how else do we live in security if it is not that we help each other by an exchange of good offenses, offices, it is only through the interchange of benefits that life becomes in some measure equipped and fortified against sudden disasters. Take us singly, and what are we? The prey of all creatures. Saying what? As a community, we need to help each other, and we need this reciprocity of exchanging gifts. So if I exchange gifts then the term that is used is friend. It's not the same way that we use the term. For us, a friend is somebody we like to hang out with, somebody who's cordial to us. So we, we, it's it's a, that friendship relationship. But for them, it was, if I've entered into this relationship, that is a friend. The patrons would often call their clients friends. Now, the client would still call the patron a patron, but that was less offensive. Again, it didn't mean that they're buddies. It was just the term that was used. Was that a friend? You help to ensure that you'll get help later. So in the parable, we have what? We have the friend who comes. I need some bread. Traveler's coming, and I need bread. He's going to help because of that patronage relationship. More than likely... It's his patron had guests come and his patron needed bread. This friend goes to somebody he knows a bread maker, wakes him up and says, I need this bread for my patron. And now that exchange has taken place. Uh, very quickly, there were trade guilds. Again, that was a relationship of people, not quite like what we would call a union, but we do see it referenced in Scripture where uh, in Acts 19, you've got uh, Demetrius. It says he brought much business to the craftsmen. And then it says together with the workmen of similar trades. Again, that's patronage language that we're seeing in Acts uh, talking about the different trade guilds. They did hold some power, and you can see uh, they're uh, trade was in danger of coming into disrepute. That's honor language, honor shame language. Uh, and they may be discredited and her magnificence destroyed. So they were wanting to maintain the honor of their God. Again, honor shame language that we're seeing. The third piece that we have in here, and I'll try to move through this kind of quickly, would be that of a broker. So I've got a patron, I've got a client. 
The other party to this is a broker. A broker is someone who could either connect patrons together or connect a patron client and a client together. It, they were needed to um, ex help it with this with this exchange. They were the middleman. They could be patrons or clients. They typically knew both parties, so they would be a good go-between. The biggest key for a broker is that they were trusted and that they knew both parties and were loyal to both parties. It was an essential piece. So let's look at a couple of examples here. So we have the Roman official, the centurion. Slave is sick. What happens is, he says what? Um, the officer heard about Jesus, sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come. So the centurion is what? He's a patron. What are these respected Jewish elders? What function are they operating as? They're the brokers. They're, gonna be, they're the middleman. Why are they the middleman? Well, look at the, the last part there. What, is, what, is, what do they say to Jesus? What are they doing to their patron? They are honoring him. They're, they're saying he's worthy. Why is he worthy? He loves our people. What did he do? He built a synagogue. What is that? That's a benefactor. That's that public work. So they were indebted to the centurion to fulfill this need to act as a broker and go to Jesus. Um, so again, this is, this is entirely within this patron-client relationship. We're getting a view into the culture with this. So the Jewish elders, because he built the synagogue, are obligated to go help. They come to Jesus, they build him up. That's the honor, that's the gratitude, that's the loyalty that we're seeing. And then Jesus goes. But what happens is, is interesting because... He then sends some friends, is the language used, to come to Jesus and say, no, you don't need to come to me because I, I know who you are. In essence, the centurion is, in, is kind of saying, Jesus, you have more honor than I do. To the Jewish elders, that would have been shocking because the centurion had achieved honor and ascribed honor. And he was Roman. So for, G, for him to not allow Jesus to come into his home was saying, this guy has more honor than I do. And that's why Jesus says, I've not seen this kind of faith. Um, again, we say he sent friends and, and we see that. So again, that's, that's predominantly a patronage inter, uh, example there. Herod and Pilate. Pilate says, oh, he's Galilean. So Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod. Herod does his thing, sends him back to Pilate. How does it end? In parentheses, it said Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends. Now, we read that and we go, oh, I guess Herod calls Pilate up and says, barbecue this Saturday. No baby back ribs. Nope, it's lamb. And they became buddies. No. These were two patrons, fairly similar on that social scale. They exchanged favors, and through that exchange became friends, which simply meant they're now obligated to help each other now. And they did want to help each other because they wanted to maintain peace in Jerusalem so that good words went back to the emperor. So now they were in this obligation. So let's not recognize them as being friends like we call it. It's friends in a social scale, friends in this patronage system. Paul before Felix in Acts 24. So a lawyer named Tertullus, they brought charges against Paul. Uh, so here's what Tertullus says to Felix. So who would be the patron? Felix is the patron. He's, he's the guy in charge. Tertullus is the lawyer. What's he need to do? Gratitude, honor, loyalty. What do we see? Um, we've enjoyed a long period of peace. Your foresight has brought about reforms everywhere, every way. Most excellent Felix. 
We acknowledge with profound gratitude. And we want you to be kind enough to hear us. We go, you know, that guy's laying it on thick. What a brown noser. No, that's culture. That is, that's expected. That was fully within what Tertullus was expecting uh, and Felix would have expected to happen. And we're seeing that right here. This is that language of patronage. Paul doesn't go that far because Paul doesn't want to have that relationship. He doesn't want to obligate himself to Felix. So he just says what? I know that for a number of years you've been judge. Now he's not dishonoring him, but he's really not trying to enter into this relationship like Tertullus was wanting to do. Um, And we can see Felix kept him around. Why? He wanted to offer him a bribe. And because Felix what? Felix left Paul in prison to do what? Grant a favor to the Jews. Again, that's again patronage language. That's that relationship. Paul in the Corinthian church. We're a couple minutes over. Hope we can, if that's okay. Um, So Paul does not accept a gift from the Corinthian church. And we think, that's odd. A preacher not taking money. When does that happen? What is he saying? I did not burden anyone. I've not been a burden. Paul did not want to enter into a patron-client relationship with the Corinthian church. He did not want to become a client to the Corinthian church because he didn't want them to have authority over him. He's saying, no, you guys are, that's not going to happen. So we're, we're not going to enter into that relationship. With other churches, he did accept their gift. And that's because the relationship then was different. But with the Corinthian church, it's, and notice it says, I'm, I'm not ever going to accept your support because I don't want others to have an excuse to boast. Uh, Philemon, if we, if we read through Philemon, again, it is filled with a lot of patronage language. Um, where Paul is the patron, Philemon is the client. Paul extended spiritual benefits, and now he's asking Philemon for benefits to Onesimus. And if you read through that, again, some of the red letters you can see um, as far as, as what we see in the patronage. Lydia was a patron. We see that because it was the church met in her house. She was a seller of purple. So women also could be patrons. It was not exclusively a man's role. Uh, Phoebe, in many of our translations, we see that um, we see our sister Phoebe, a servant of the Lord, and at the last, for she herself has been a helper of many. The word there is is the word for patron. So to say she's a helper of many is is a fairly watered-down translation of what that really means. Um, Some versions, again, the NRSV will say she was a benefactor of many. That comes closer to it. But there is no doubt that Phoebe, by by giving this term patron, uh, was wealthy and that she did benefit the church. So she had that role of a patron. Uh, Technically, yeah, she's a patroness. So kind of in summary, uh, the Jewish culture was not patron-client, but they lived within a society that was, so we see that throughout Scripture. We don't need to infer every interaction through the lens of patron-client, but many of them do make more sense when we do that. And the concepts of patron-client will help us understand how Paul communicating mainly to the Gentile churches. And that's what we want to look at next week. We want to see, okay, so now that we understand what this relationship is, patron-client-broker, start thinking on, so how, how am I seeing that with God and Jesus? And how does that, this image now play into what we see there? So that's what I'd like you to think about coming into next week. Um, again, very quickly, I'll do this real quick. Last week, Phil talked about the fringe. And the woman with the issue of blood, she went up and touched the fringe of Jesus, and she was healed. Why? Because in Malachi, we see what? 
that the son of righteousness, there will be healing in his wings. And we learned that wings was the, another name for the fringe on the corner of the garments. And God commanded that for what reason? You will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember the commandments of the Lord. So as I look at my garment, I look down at my blue fringe, I am remembering the commandments or the direction, the mitzvah of the Lord. So the Hebrew word is tzitzit, it's fringe like a pear, wings like a seed. The Hebrew language is a concrete language and it is a root language or a stem language, which simply means that most words are a three-consonant word, and then you build words off of that. As an example, I could have a really good vanilla bean ice cream recipe, and I make a really good vanilla bean ice cream. But if I throw some strawberries into it, now I've got strawberry ice cream. If I put a little green food coloring, some chocolate chips, and some mint flavor, I've got mint chocolate chip. Maybe I put some cocoa in it, now I've got chocolate ice cream. So I've got chocolate, mint, strawberry, brown, green, red. They don't look at, at all alike. But what's the same base? The same base is the vanilla bean ice cream. So that vanilla bean ice cream flavors all of the other uh, iterations of that. Same within Hebrew. You have your root word that in essence gives a flavor to the words that come out of it. So the root word for tzitzit, the fringe, is you can see the first three letters, C, and it means a flower, a bloom, or a blossom. If we think of a blossom, what do we think of? We think of a little flower. Maybe a peach blossom, an apple blossom. But we think of, that's what we think of, the blossom. But what if we think of its function? What is the function of a blossom? The function of an apple blossom is what? Produce an apple. What is the function of a peach blossom? Produce a peach. So the function of a blossom is to produce fruit. So as I look at this, when we look at the fringe, the root of that is producing fruit. So what we wonder is, did Paul look at the corners of his garment when he wrote, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Did Jesus hold up his garment and he says, I want you to bear much fruit. Because basically, the concept of following God's commands, His directions, will allow a person to bear fruit. That's literally woven into the garments of the Jews. So what I know is that what God has said by following His commands, His direction, that allows me to bear fruit. And as a Jew looked at the tassels, that's what they would have seen and been reminded of. So that's our final thought. Appreciate everyone. A few minutes over. Thank you for your patience. And we will hopefully gather again next week. So thank you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.